You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, we're starting a little early, but there's a long passage, so I guess we'll get started. Um, 18 verses, Revelation chapter 13. I'll read those and then we'll, we'll pray. Listen carefully, this is God's word. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. Uh, That's why the title, Filled with Wonder, the Unholy Trinity, The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies, to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to make war against God's people and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, and here John quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. Interesting that this quote from Jeremiah comes in the context of of Jeremiah emboldening the people who are going to suffer the Babylonian uh, judgment and captivity. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw another beast. This is the beginning of the third paragraph. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of everyone. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword yet lived. It was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. 
It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, to receive a mark on their right hands or foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let those who have insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. The word of the Lord. You seem to hesitate on that. Thanks be to the Lord on that one. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word, for your revelation to us. I pray that it would strengthen us and comfort us, encourage us, embolden us to live into the faith that we have received by your grace and mercy. Uh, together we praise you now and ask for your insight in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in interpreting this passage, I'd like to begin in the upper room with Jesus and John's uh, gospel. Uh, in number one there, believers in the world, uh, I'm in, in not believing in the world, but believers who are in the world. Jesus is comfort. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Correspond with a warning. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now keep in mind that the same person who wrote the gospel, I believe, is the person who wrote uh, the revelation. John, remember, uses imagery, apocalyptic imagery. He uses symbol, uses metaphor. Um, it's his Lord of the Rings, if you will to describe human life. In the fourth gospel, it's plain and simple and straightforward. It's the same author, uh, same truth, but very different genres, different ways of relating that truth. In the upper room, Jesus prepared the disciples for persecution. He explicitly warned his disciples so that they would not go astray. He said, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Warning and comfort are commingled in Jesus' spiritual direction in the upper room. Nothing that John says in the Revelation is out of kilter or contrary to what Jesus laid out in that upper room discourse. What John does do here in chapter 13 in Revelation is give us a parody on the Trinity. You have three figures that he describes in this unholy Trinity, a dragon, a land beast, and a sea beast. And as I show in this uh, box here, there's a parallel at almost every point between Jesus Christ and these three figures that personify and embody the power of evil. Reading under number two, the unholy trinity, evil is more deeply rooted, more all-encompassing than we ever imagined. The forces of evil work in tandem. The enormous red dragon, 
makes war against God's people and empowers the seven-headed monster that rises from the sea. The beast of the earth has the power and skill to deceive, intimidate, and manipulate humankind into submission. Under these three figures, the dragon, the beast of the sea, and the beast of the earth, John portrayed the power of evil. That's what he's doing, portraying the power of evil. He's not giving us a kind of history of the end in which we are to identify who's the dragon, who's the land beast, who's the sea beast, what is their name, where do they figure in history. He's expressing the impact of evil and he's doing it with figures and with symbols and with images of the dragon of the beasts. Um, so he's crafting a picture, a vivid picture. It could be said in the abstract. You could have a philosophical statement here about the power of evil. But he doesn't work that way. He doesn't impact that way. And remember, this is a prison epistle. He's on the island of Patmos because he has run uh, contrary to the Roman Empire and he's been banished, exiled to this rocky island. Um, and so he's writing in, uh, in a sense, in a subversive way. Uh, he is describing, I think, the, the model before him of evil is the Roman Empire. But he's not limiting the description of evil to the Roman Empire. So he has forces before him that um, are coming down hard on the church, state-sponsored persecution under Nero's reign and under Domitian. We don't know really which reign John is writing. 64 in the mid-60s seems early. Uh, Domitian's in the 90s. Um, we're not sure which one. And certainly between the 60s and the 90s, there is persecution that's going on against the church. We won't go through that box, Christ and the Beast, but let me make my point, and if you're interested, you can go back and you can look up these passages. But if you remember in chapter 1 in the vision of Christ, Christ, uh, his mouth is like a sword, which is to say that the word penetrates as it does in uh, the author of Hebrews describes the, uh, the word severing like the spirit and the marrow. Uh, in chapter 1 and verse 16 and then in 19.15, Christ has the sword. But here the beast uh, functions with the sword. In, in verse 10, uh, we read, if anyone's uh, going into captivity, they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword. Uh, in chapter 5, uh, Christ is the lamb that looks as if it was slain. When we see that throne vision of Christ, he is the lamb that looks as if it was slain. And in chapter 13, the beast uh, is recovering from being wounded. My point is that at, at every descriptive point of evil, there's kind of a parody off of what Christ is and what Christ represents. So the devil is not an original thinker, at least from John's perspective. He's playing off of. In a seductive, manipulated, intimidating, and dominating in an oppressive way.
Everything good about God in Christ and in the Spirit is modeled and parodied off of, uh, evil is parodied off of that. That's why I don't think there's a great deal of mystery behind the 666. It is the parody of 777. So instead of the holy trinity, you have an unholy trinity, and it's modeled after the dragon and the land beast and the the sea beast. The paragraph below the box, John's description of the beast of the sea draws on Old Testament imagery of sea monsters. This monster beast is empowered by the dragon who gives the beast power and authority. The seven heads and ten crowns signify the global impact of his oppressive power. The beast represents the Roman Empire. In John's day, evil has taken on a great deal more. So by now, in our study of, uh, before you turn the page, if you go back to the beginning of the text, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And we have seen this imagery of the mighty angel with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. It had ten horns. What would that speak of? You know, we've talked about numbers being symbolic, a language. Ten speaking of great completeness, comprehensiveness. Seven heads, again, perfection. And ten crowns on its horns and each holding a blasphemous name. This is power uh, described in the name of evil rather than the use of ten and seven that have been used to describe the goodness of God and the greatness of God and the universal scope of God's love and mercy. The beast resembling a leopard but had feet like those of a bear. In other words, the stability and the power of a bear but a mouth like a lion. So he's just using these animals, not unlike the elementary school class that asks the kids if they're more like a golden retriever or an otter or a beaver. He's just playing off of those images here on the side of the ferociousness and the danger that they represent. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority, and one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound. So even like the crucified one, there's a parody. Even the beast seems to have have suffered um, and yet recovered. Uh, So John is uh, just taking the gospel story and contrasting that with the evil story. And who gets caught in between? Humanity and a suffering church in the midst of all of that. Now let's turn the page. The beast is the devil's propaganda chief. Uh, The soul may be seduced in subtle ways. And here are two examples. Uh, Just very quickly, I mean, you could have... uh, My point being is that the power of the beast to seduce, to intimidate, to beguile is a kind of demonic power. And I would say that, remember last week I talked about the devil's torrent, and I used the illustration of a student at university that uh, is just kind of immersed in a culture that is antithetical to the Christian way, and thus anti-Christ. 
two quick examples. Uh, Berkeley professor Herbert Dreyfus, who's now deceased uh, this past year, and Harvard philosopher Sean Kelly, who has chaired the Harvard philosophy department, wrote a book, All Things Shining. And I've uh, referenced this book before in my Sunday school classes. But ba the basic thesis of that is in the wake of nihilism, in the wake of total despair, we can't go there, so where should we go? And they advocate going back to the Greek-Roman gods, not to worship the gods in the sense of bowing before them, but acquiring their understanding of moods, of feeling, something more. And I just find it so ironic that uh, a leading philosopher at Berkeley and a leading philosopher at Harvard would uh, you know, well, uh, uh, Sean Kelly was a student of Hubert Drivus, but they would join up to say, in the face of despair, let's go back to the feelings of the Greek gods and the moods, because you just live in the moment. And that's all there is to live, and that's a, a kind of defense against this utter despair of really th knowing that there is no meaning there is no greater truth. There is no universal truth. And that's said so calmly in their philosophy. Uh, just accept that and go with it. And let's go back to how the first century understood kind of living in this. Uh, and for them, one of the easiest ways for Americans to come out of that funk of nihilistic despair is sports. Because in the moment, you feel that transcendent feeling. They speak of the swoosh, that, that moment of exhilaration. And, and, that, that, and you say to yourself, well, this is why I'm alive. And they paint this picture. Um, I'm suggesting to hear it's, it's like the, the dragon and the beast um, in its deceptiveness. Uh, a second, and you know, I actually learned of Brene Brown from an evangelical pastor using it as an important leverage for speaking about relationships. Brene Brown is a sociologist that became kind of famous by giving a very attractive and compelling TED Talk on the key to relationships is vulnerability. Just acknowledge that you're vulnerable, face it, accept it, live in it to it. And um, you can you can Google her um, and uh, or YouTuber and get uh, Brene Brown's talk on this, and it is compelling. My concern is that somebody takes Brene Brown and the way she presents it, I think, is uh, I don't think I'm being unfair to her at all, and say, well, this is the key. This is the key to to living here, is kind of come to terms with yourself. Um, realize your vulnerability, live into that. Um, and the closing slide in her presentation is a woman, and on her chest is, I am enough. And it's kind of coming to the realization that, you know, I am who I am. I can do it. Oh, which is really different from Paul's, I am who I am. I am who I am because of Christ. Uh, versus I am who I am because, you know, I've lived with my vulnerability. Uh, that's a kind of deceptive and seductive sort of um, 
uh, mind game, I think. Uh, but very compelling. And as I say, my introduction to it was a pastor saying, this is great. This is wonderful. This is a way out of our uh, uh, difficulty. The thing that uh, bugs me about some of my most favorite authors, who I think are erratic and thoughtful, somebody like David Brooks uh, for the New York Times, uh, they don't want what, quote, the weird stuff of Christianity. They like its selflessness. They like its self-denial. They like the idea of uh, living for others and being selfless. But don't don't go with the incarnation or the atonement or the resurrection or the ascension or the second coming. All the weird stuff, you know, just sort of sweep aside. And what do we keep? What can we keep that's sort of uplifting and encouraging and, and seemingly substantive? I'm calling this somewhat the language game of the beast, number four. Shockingly, it seems that the whole world prefers the beast over the lamb. Why is that? Why are these other versions of life, coping with life, demonically inspired, and I don't mean demonic in sort of some mystical, um, uh, superstitious way. Everything about the Antichrist beast communicates power and triumph over and against the weakness of the Lamb. John doesn't use the word Antichrist in the book of Revelation, which you might find surprising, but he does use it in his epistles in 1 John. He writes in 1 John, you have heard the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. I grew up, and maybe you did too, with the sense that, well, uh, there was a literal, singular person who was the Antichrist, and we should keep our eyes out for him. I don't think that that's what John intended in his epistles, uh, nor in the thrust of his uh, understanding of evil in the book of Revelation. It is a way of speaking of and personifying a culture that is anti-Christ. That certainly fleshes it out in people who are anti-Christ-like. His definition of the Antichrist is this, whoever denies that Jesus is the Messiah, such a person is the Antichrist denying the Father and the Son. And obviously there's a lot of people who deny that Jesus is the Messiah. About the fourth paragraph down, the spirit of the Antichrist can be found wherever the incarnation of Christ is denied. John warns the believers that this spirit of denial and deception is already in the world. The fifth paragraph, the demonic attack is multifaceted. You see, he's saying that in the first century. It's not like we're waiting for the Antichrist. That reality has been with us from the beginning. Uh, from the beginning of the church age, from the beginning of the end times with Jesus's ascension. The demonic attack is multifaceted and mediated through the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. The beast out of the earth appears to be a parody of the lamb who was slain. Its two horns mimics, remember we've talked about the two witnesses and the two lampstands and the two olive trees. All of this then is sort of parodied in this two-horned lamb. The beast is called a dragon and a false prophet because its primary duty is to convince the world to worship the beast of the sea. 
Final paragraph on that left column, we're warned by John that the beast can match the witness of the church with whatever is needed. This is telling. Authority, humor, wit, power, even signs and wonders. The beast that looks like a lamb, talks like a dragon, is the Antichrist minister of propaganda. The beast of the earth forced everyone who wanted to participate in commerce to wear the mark of the beast, which was man's name, 666. That's not literal, the mark on the beast. Uh, if you notice in chapter 14, verse 1, the next chapter, which we'll look at next week. And boy, in, in, on Monday last week, preparing, I really wanted to, I wanted to have both the negative and the positive. Today's negative. Today's all about evil. And uh, 14 is the positive. And if we were in the first century church and we weren't thinking about time, and I had you all afternoon, we would do 13 and 14 for sure. But 14 begins, then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So that's the contrast between the naming of the beast uh, and the seal on the hand. You have the Holy Spirit and you have the naming of the people. It's not a literal name. It's just that you are identified by the name of God. This defines you. I am who I am because of the grace of Christ, as Paul said. The right column, top page, John's vision of the beast of the earth parodies Christ and the church. The satanic knockoff tries in every way imaginable to copy the true way. If the beast's chief weapon is deception, then the believer's necessary response is discernment. Got that? I think that's key. The chief weapon of evil is deception. The believer's necessary response is discernment. This is why you and I have to be in the spirit, on our toes, as it were. Uh, uh, we can't afford to be quite so complacent and so unthoughtful. We can't go along with the cultural tide. Um, uh, I mean, we can't be shaped either by CNN or Fox. We really can't. We've got to start thinking for our, ourselves in Christ and in his word, out of his word. Um, uh, it's best that we begin to realize that we're surrounded by deception and manipulation. Intimidation is circumvented by insight. John's right. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast. Uh, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite passages is Philippians 1. This is my prayer that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you would discern what is best and be filled with the fruit of righteousness until the day of Christ Jesus. How we need to be discerning, discerning as parents, discerning as grandparents, uh, discerning at work, uh, discerning in the neighborhood, discerning uh, God's will, God's way, and I don't mean to make that so complicated. I don't think it's a, trying to understand the calculus problem. 
I think that's one of the interesting things about the Christian faith is that what we are about is fairly straightforward and simple. Uh, we can't hide behind I don't understand very easily. Uh, we're just called to faithfulness, called to simple obedience. This is, again, a theme throughout the book of Revelation. There's not a lot required of the believer except to be faithful, to simply come before Christ, obey his word. The third paragraph in the right column, there are many theories as to who or what John meant by this number, but given the symbolic nature of all the numbers in the book, it seems best not to make a literal calculation. The triple sixes are the antithesis to divine perfection. The number signifies the completeness of sinful incompleteness found in the beast. John's digital discernment fits with his description of the deification of secular authority. If he had Nero or Rome in mind, the number serves as a parable nearest at hand for the unimaginable forms that historical evil will, will assume. The nearer we approach the end. I have a friend of a friend who lived in Toronto and when Ronald Reagan was shot, he had already kind of determined that, what's Ronald Reagan's middle name? Wilson. Wilson. Ronald Wilson Reagan, um, six, 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 six letters in each name. And he had already been sort of thinking along those terms. When he heard that Ronald Reagan was shot, he immediately went to the airport in Toronto and flew to Israel and bought property just to be ready for the return of Christ. That's not what John is talking about here. Uh, number five, the strategy of the Lamb. The unholy trinity appears to have the strategic and tactical superiority. You read this and you think, well, what hope is there? Oh, there's going to be more, and that's why chapter 14 is important. The unholy trinity appears to have the strategic and tactical superiority. Believers were either persuaded or persecuted by the beast in the eyes of the world. Failure is certain. Now, this is what I, uh, I tend to struggle with. Because the redemptive trajectory, as understood by the Apostle John, really seems to be leading to the conclusion that life is only going to get harder for the Christian. And that in the last generation before Christ comes, it will really be bad. Now, could Christ come at any time? I believe so. And I know that there's probably millions of believers in Korea, in China, in Syria, throughout the Middle East, throughout aspects of Africa, that feel like life couldn't be worse for following Jesus Christ. And so on behalf of that global church, uh, we can see the intensity of evil. We're watching it. Meanwhile, we're kind of out of the game, as it were, too. Um, and yet, okay, take that thought. The other aspect of that thought is 
Christians always trying to really improve the world. Improve it educationally, improve it in terms of creation care, improve it economically, uh, strengthen it. And I think that's the paradox that we ought to live into. Realization that we're on a trajectory of antithesis to the kingdom of Christ. The same time, we give ourselves to the kingdom of Christ. And that that paradox of knowing evil will have its day, and yet living into an evil world with all that Christ would have us do, however Christ can make that world better because of his work through us, that those two things are in in juxtaposition, in paradox, in synergy, in conflict. Um, Joseph Mangina teaches at Wycliffe College in Toronto, and he writes, the saints lose. This outcome will seem disappointing, only to the extent that we embrace the beast's criteria for what constitutes success. The church that imagines it has a successful strategy for confronting the principalities and powers on their own terms had better think again. So be prepared for being an outpost of hope, alien residents, a culture that you're not going to take back. And this is where the Jeremiah quote comes in. And whenever the apostles quote from the Old Testament, they don't just pull a line from the Old Testament. This is what we're beginning to understand, I think, as biblical scholars, that it's more like they're taking that small quote and the whole context of Jeremiah with it. So they're not proof texting, they're highlighting. They're highlighting so that you go back and understand the whole work of Jeremiah. If you're assigned to die, go and die. Now, again, that may sound fatalistic, but that's not how John intends it. He's not speaking fatalistically. He's speaking faithfully. If you're assigned to die, go and die. If assigned to war, go and get killed. If assigned to starve, go starve. If assigned to exile, off to exile you go. That would make really interesting reading inside a greeting card, wouldn't it? John's lifting this up. Uh, John's lifting Jeremiah the prophet up, just sort of saying, um, "Get a thicker skin. Grow into your testimony for Christ. Be a little bolder. If you're going to get taken out for your faith." Get taken out for your faith. If you're going to suffer, okay, suffer. And we might need to spend a little bit more time on why that's not fatalistic and why that's faithful. But John certainly isn't coddling these first century believers. He's concerned to make them bolder for Christ. John stands for a passionate embrace of faithfulness, not a passive acceptance of faith, fate, but rather a passionate embrace of faithfulness. John shares the Apostle Paul's perspective. I've been crucified with Christ. 
I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a bold statement. Now, I, I have a few minutes. Um, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Psalm 52 with me? Um, and this was in lieu of going into <laughs> Revelation chapter 14, which we'll, Lord willing, take up next week. But Psalm 52, I wonder if you know that this psalm is in the Psalter. Um, and sorry, there wasn't room on the one page. I'm really trying to keep this uh, at my wife's uh, suggestion to one front and back. She says, when you go into third and four pages, people just look at you and think, what's he doing? Uh, so Psalm 52 didn't make it, but I hope you have your Bible. But Or either that or you listen really well, or you have your phone handy. Psalm 52. Did you know that this psalm was in the Psalter? That's the question. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long? You who are a disgrace in the eyes of God. You who practice deceit. Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good. Falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong, by destroying others. And then the tone changes, and almost like Psalm 1, with the picture of two different types of people, the psalmist says, but I'm like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faith, faithful people, and I will hope in your name for your name is good. What's interesting is the first, uh, well, both sides are exceedingly interesting, but first seven verses describe what I think is captured in Revelation 13 in terms of the manipulative, intimidating power that's expressed against God in Christ, that antithetical perspective. And it's given a much more human face in Psalm 52, the great hero. Um, the great hero who's honored because of his deceit and his destruction and his sharp tongue like a razor, um, who loves every harmful word, and yet God will bring that person down to everlasting ruin. Well, a dark subject, but I hope I've removed uh, the weirdness of some of our interpretation of Revelation. And we see that John is speaking to us in images. And he's leaving before us a picture of the power of evil and the need for Christians to be with it, discerning, understanding, and resilient 
in the face of that kind of evil. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.